Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about the idea of one big idea, helping leaders focus and grow their organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever in creating the world we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organizations. I am delighted that on this show, we're going to be featuring Peter Martin, the founder and CEO of Ask My Board. So Peter, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Maureen. First of all, I'm really honored to be on this podcast. I'm a big fan of yours and all the work that you do and to get to share some some ideas with you and toss around some some ideas for listeners is, I think, just a super honor. And I, I appreciate being on the show. Thank you. And the honor is mutual. Thank you. A little bit briefly about me. So I've been in a leadership position for over 25 years. I used to work for IBM. I worked in executive management at SAP. I've had six businesses, four of which I started, scaled, and sold out of the six. I have two that are active currently, one including Ask My Board, which you mentioned, and I can tell you, I've probably made every leadership mistake there is under the book. <laughs> and I think that's what probably qualifies me to at least talk about things that leaders can do. Uh, and as leadership evolves, it's something you continue to learn over your lifetime. It's not something that you get it. You're instantly a great leader. It's all people business, right? And so I think that, you know, I can share some of the things that I've done correctly, some of the things that I've not done so correctly, but I learned from. So in a nutshell, that, that's me. Beautiful. Thank you. And as we go forward, we'll certainly talk a little bit more about you. And your bio is incredibly impressive. Thank you. So what you as a leader work on minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day matters and either moves the needle and propels growth or constricts it. For instance, consistently and strategically choosing one big idea per month or pieces of that big idea will move your business forward faster than any one particular tactic. Working on one big idea across each pillar of your business, team, customers, capital, and strategic execution, and personal mindset will lead to an exponential growth over time. So Pete joins me today to share reasons why companies get stuck and stop growing and what leaders can do to change that. So Pete, let's jump in. What are the most common reasons that companies get stuck and stop growing? And what can leaders do to change that trajectory and start growing again? We work with a lot of, I'd say small businesses, but they're companies anywhere from maybe a million in revenue up to, we've got clients that are up to 50 million in revenue. So it's pretty big range. But a lot of the reasons that companies get stuck are fairly universal across kind of all revenue bands. And, you know, maybe it's very different for a Fortune 500 company or somebody that's over 100 million. But I think there's some common themes. The three biggest reasons that I see, the one is, I'm going to say kind of generically the mindset of the leader. And I'm going to kind of dig into that a little bit. But it's kind of where they're at in their head in terms of they either don't have the confidence that they can move to the next level. They've lost the passion and the energy about the business. The business has frankly outgrown them. That's a very common thing we see that you may be great at managing 10 people, but you're not the right person to manage 100 people. Interesting story. So I was listening to a podcast yesterday about a gentleman who some of the early funding in his company came from Reed Hoffman, who was the founder of LinkedIn. And he was relating the story that shortly before Reed stepped down and hired Jeff Weiner, Reed had admitted to him, he said, look, I'm not a guy that can get past 50 people. Like once it's kind of your fast 50 people, it's very repetitive and it's about process and operations. And 
that's not my guy. That's not what kind of fulfills me. And so it's this whole mindset of as a leader driving a company and driving growth forward, you know, A, are you the right person? Do you continue to have passion in the business? Do you have a growth mindset, right, that you can figure stuff out? A lot of folks will degrade up to a certain level because they've got that domain expertise. And at some point, that domain expertise becomes less important. It's about managing people, not managing the business, right? That's probably number one. The other thing that we've seen is markets change. And so you get your company to a certain level. And it's fine when you, as the founder, are we, there's something we call the owner's trap, which is you were doing the selling, right? You were managing people. And then the business, again, kind of the business gets bigger than you. And so you really have to change how you approach leading the business. And it's not so much, I've got this direct relationship with these clients. And so now you need to go from these direct relationships to these clients to managing the people that have the clients, to giving up control. Very personal story. So I sold my last company to KPMG. And about 18 months before I sold the business, I knew I was growing weary of the business. I kind of lost that passion for it. So I started putting a lot of things in place to remove myself from the day-to-day business. Up to that point, I had done the majority of the selling. You know, I oversaw the delivery. It was a huge ego boost when I started to step back from the business and the business flourished and it started growing way faster. And so part of me was like, ah, this, I knew this would happen. The other part of me was, oh my God, what, a, what an ego blow, right? That, you know, these guys are doing a better job than I am, frankly. And so again, it's all kind of in this general mindset of the business and, and how the leader is kind of approaching the growth of the business. But nine times out of 10, it's that leader on the top who casts a long shadow over the business. If we can get them past themselves in many, many, many instances, we can see the, you know, the, the business grow and flourish. And I, I had that personal experience of that happening. And I imagine many people are very uncomfortable with that idea. Absolutely. Um, and we work with business owners that, frankly, they don't want to go to the next level. They'll say, we, you know, we want to be 10X. And it's like, okay, are you willing to do X, Y, and Z? And they come back and they say, no, I love interacting with customers. We're like, then you need to have a different position in the company or you're not going to scale the business. You just, you can't, right? How has leadership changed, if at all, past the pandemic? And what should leaders do to adopt to the new world environment? Yeah, it's changed a lot, Maureen. So first of all, every business now is a digital business. I don't care what you do. There is a digital tech element to the company. And if you are not tech savvy as a business owner and as a leader, at least a little bit, or you're not bringing in folks that have the tech savviness, you're going to be in a world of hurt. You're not going to be able to grow the business over time. Directly related to that, most applicable from a leadership perspective is the way that people work has changed forever because of remote work, because of COVID. We're never going to go back to this kind of command and control structure where I've got this big team of people. They're in my physical facilities. I watch what they're doing. I see what they're doing. I can manage by walking around. That's all done, right? So now from a leadership perspective, we have to move to really managing the business based on KPIs, managing the business based on trust, making sure that we're hiring people that are self-initiated, right? That probably wasn't necessarily a competence that we would hire for pre-COVID. You're at home, you've got all these demands on you at home, you've got all this free time and nobody's watching over you necessarily. Are you the kind of person that's got the self-initiation that can get the work done, right? We didn't hire for that before. We didn't ask those questions. 
So leadership has fundamentally changed post-COVID. And the folks that came from kind of, the, I call it the command and control structure, where I want to see the people, I want to be able to grab them by the scruff of the neck if they're not doing the job. You're not going to hire the people that you want to hire. And the folks that are there, they're probably going to find another job if that's the kind of environment that you have. I've seen many, many stats from many reports that said right now, about 50% of employees are looking potentially for another job. So you as the leader have to create that culture where people want to stay and create the culture that the top performers want to come to your business. So leadership has changed fundamentally because of COVID, I think for the better. Fortunately, when I've started my companies, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, we never really said, okay, we want to we want to hire this Cleveland-based organization. We said, we want to go hire the best and brightest wherever they are in the country or in the world and attract them to the company. So we've been doing remote management literally my entire entrepreneurial career. Most businesses have not. And so we kind of got used to managing people that are remotely and, and building the trust and building the systems and the processes in place to make that all work. But it's a new thing for a lot of people. So I come out of consulting and consultants are remote by their nature. We fly in, we work with people, we go our separate ways, we're located all over the place. And yet I work with people who have a very different world than I do. So they own a chemical plant or they own a construction company or companies where they're making something so they need to be in the same place. And what I'm curious about when I talk to those clients, they're saying people actually want to come here they like that their world hasn't changed like everybody else does. We're not having the same issues with retention. And so that's different than my world. And I'm curious how you respond to that, because it seems like for some people, they are comfortable with traditional rather than the changes. I 100% agree. We have clients that are also in the manufacturing businesses that have that same situation. Frankly, a lot of professional businesses that people say we want to get back to the office. I think the difference is, is it mandated or is it something that it's a pull versus a push? And so I think that um, if you can create a culture as a leader that people want to be in your central location because of the camaraderie, because of the exchange of ideas, because that's where innovation happens. That's very different than I'm going to mandate that you be here Monday through Friday because you have to, right? Mm -hmm. So when I talk about kind of this change of mentality, that's kind of where I go to. Yes, you may have to have people there kind of working a manufacturing line, but be flexible, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have to have people there eight through five, whatever, and you can do have flex schedules and this kind of stuff, that's the kind of stuff that's going to change for pretty much everybody, I believe. Here's one of the questions that I have seen posed several times. So I've got people in the manufacturing floor or load and baggage on a plane or whatever organization it is. And that group of people has to show up because you can't load the bags from your home. Yep. And yet there are other people who are generally better paid and have more flexibility. They get to work from home and it creates a division within the company of it's not fair. I have to come in and you people get to work from home in your pajamas. How do you as a leader respond to, I'm sure if I were loading bags or on a production line, I would not like that people get to work in their underwear. If they're working in their underwear, I'd rather them stay home. <laughs> but the, you know, whatever the, the jokes about, you have to wear pants now. Yep. 
how do you respond to what does feel like a little bit of an inequitable situation? I'll tell you, if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be a multimillionaire by now because every company is struggling with this exact same thing. Mm -hmm. My perspective on this is that that always existed. Very few companies ever kind of mandated that the white collar workers, the sales, the admin, whatever, you know, had to come into the office. They just did because that's where work happened. And so I think it's a company called Workday, which is a big software company, is taking this very interesting approach. They've got kind of three categories of people. They have the people that have to be there for a reason. They're the folks that are on the help desk. They're in the data center, right? They're doing whatever they have to do. They physically have to be there, security, you know, whatever. Then they have the kind of flex people that they should be there. They think that's where kind of, again, innovation and and stuff happens. So they want to promote a culture where people will come into the office. And then they have the folks that really doesn't matter whether they come in or not. They're trying different policies for all three of those and hmm. see what works, right? And see and, and kind of measure employee engagement over a period of time and employee satisfaction over time because they don't know. This is a new world for everybody. And it's a very fair thing for people that are, you know, have to be in a physical location to perform their job to look at everybody else and say, it doesn't seem fair to me. But I think the reality is it's always been that way. It just was never so blatant and so discreet that there's actually different policies now. I like the idea of experimentation because, as you said, it does feel unequitable, but it also doesn't feel right to say you have to be in the office, especially when you're doing exactly as you said, we hire the best people from around the world. I don't want to be constrained by people who live in a 10-mile circumference around me. And there are people with disabilities and people with all kinds of home situations who can work differently. And some of our work requires you're involved during core hours, but some doesn't. Yep. I don't want to constrain my workforce by that. And you think about these knowledge workers and knowledge companies that are on the, the different coasts in the U.S., right? There's really, really qualified people that could go work at those companies, they don't want to move to San Francisco and New York, right? It's just too darn expensive. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is also going to change kind of policies as well, because it's just, again, I can go now attract people from Ohio that are as good or better than people that are on the coast, and I don't have to force them to move. And so your labor pool, your potential labor pool opens up dramatically. And I read a really interesting article about local regional competition for talent, where if I'm in Bozeman, Montana, I didn't have to compete with Google. Now I'm competing with Google because they're reaching out to the Midwest, right, in central U.S. and looking for talent as well. So it's, it's really changing a lot of dynamics all the way around. I'm also in Ohio, and I wondered how it would impact our real estate prices when people who are living in San Francisco because they have the hot startup job and they're starting a family and they want to be near family members. And we are seeing some of that directly in our neighborhood of people who've moved here because they have family. And yep. and the cost of living is different than San Francisco. Just a little bit. <laughs> okay. So we both know that leadership is hard because it involves earning the trust of people enough that they want to follow us. And most business success is directly related to people, knowledge workers, and also staff, right? Just the people who get things done across the range. 
So what can leaders do to have the biggest impact on the people side, especially when we're working remotely? And you said like the management by walking around doesn't work the same way. And if we're all on teams, am I clicking on everyone's image all day long to see what they're up to? Because that kind of oversight and lack of trust also doesn't inspire anyone. Yep. I would say the first thing is, and this honestly has always been the toughest thing for me, and I think it is for a lot of business owners, and that is, I guess in a word, vulnerability, right? And the, the really authenticity of saying, I don't have all the answers. Again, very kind of personal story. So with the business that I sold to KPMG was a consulting firm implementing SAP. So we were systems integrator. In 2008, when the financial crisis hit, late 2008, early 2009, we lost about a little over a third of our business, almost half of our business overnight. So the end of the story was we didn't lay anybody off, but we got to a couple of Fridays where we had no idea where money was going to come in enough to pay payroll. And so I kind of owned that problem with my partner for probably about three, four months. And it was really lonely. And so I finally kind of made this decision and I'm like, you know what? I don't have all the stinking answers. So I was finally just said, look, guys, I, I, I'm not 100% sure how to recover from this. Let's kind of get together. Let's huddle up. Let's see what ideas everybody has and see if we can kind of get through this incredibly difficult situation together. And it was really, really, really hard for me. I think most business owners, most CEOs want to be the person with the answers, right? Being vulnerable and saying, I don't have all the answers and I don't know necessarily what the right direction is, is really hard to do. Oh my God. So, you know, when I did that, it was like this complete cleansing thing. Like I just finally confessed all my sins, I don't know, or something. But some brilliant stuff came out that we would have never thought of. I would have never thought of on my own unless I shared that with, you know, the people that were in the business, kind of in the boat with me, if you will. So I think that's number one, because people want to work with people that they care for and that knows that has their back, right? And if you are the person that just thinks you have all the answers and you don't share those weaknesses with other people, they're not ever sure. And so to me, that was the thing that probably built more trust. Very directly related to that, early in the business, we had created a what we called a manifesto. So we kind of laid out what we wanted the culture to be like. We had a situation where we had a prospective client come to us and said, we want to kind of make a long story short, we want to give you this piece of business that's worth probably three million bucks a year. And we knew based on the industry, this particular company treated vendors like crap. And we were a fairly young company. We had, I think, a dozen people that we really cared for. And this was a difference maker to the business. I mean, this would have put us on a completely different trajectory. And we turned down the business. We were very public with the employees about that. And two left and said, you're crazy. Like, why you would pass up this piece of business? I have no idea. And they went to a competitor. Mm -hmm. But the rest stayed with us for the rest of time. They'd never left the company. It built this level of trust that we did what we said we were going to do. We were watching their back. We didn't take the business because we knew that it would personally impact them because they were going to be treated like crap. And it really established this level of trust. So between that and then stating what your culture is very discreetly and then living to those values builds trust. Being vulnerable builds trust. Being authentic and genuine builds trust. And then just the transparency that goes with all that. Those are all the kind of the necessary leadership ingredients to really build a culture of trust that you can then kind of set people free and they can work remote and do whatever and they'll do it and they'll watch your back. 
That sounds like it was a big shift for you, especially the moment where you acknowledged going from, I've got the answers, I've got this solved, to, I don't have the answers, this is really scary, making payroll, because yep. they're not going to be quite so dedicated if I can't pay them. That's right. What helped you stay that course versus doing it and then going back to the guy you used to be? So it was interesting because my biggest concern about telling them that was they were going to flee. Like, oh my God, the company's in trouble. We're out of here, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that they not only stuck with me, but each tragic thing we went through where I involved them in the solution got them more engaged and we got better ideas, more innovation flourished, and it kind of drove down this deeper level of loyalty. It was really very interesting. And so I think each time that I saw that and each time that I was kind of scared to, to dump stuff on their plate, that they stepped up to the plate, okay, this is the right thing to do and it's working and it's actually, we're getting way more benefits than me just holding this stuff back and being the, the guy that I used to be. In our coaching, we call that kind of competing commitment. I'm choosing between being open, which is scary, and being not open, which is scary in a different way. Right. When we do each experiment, it's actually rewiring our brains and it takes a while for that rewiring. I can easily bounce back to the old behavior. Even if I don't stay there, what you're going to see is a little bit of shifty kind of behavior until I get in the literal grooves in my brain and the new behavior. I will still say I've got some deep grooves of that old behavior that <laughs> comes out all the time. But fortunately, I've got enough people around me that will say, hey, come on, Martin, <laughs> don't, don't be that guy, right? <laughs> It's really cool to hear from a successful leader how that process works for you, because it is fascinating how we as humans navigate that shifting. Yeah, you know, we're all creatures of habit, right? And so in order to break a habit, you just need that repetition and you need the positive reinforcement that whatever that behavior is, that you're getting better results from it. So frankly, habit is also helpful for our brains, right? I don't have to rethink about how to use my toothbrush in the morning and I consistently put my pants on. I never leave the house without clothes. That's a habit that... I figured you said, you know, you didn't put on pants because you're doing that Zoom meeting in, the, in your underwear, right? <laughs> I am not one of those people that will accidentally <laughs> step away from the computer and expose my lower parts. Nope, me neither. <laughs> Always stuff goes wrong. People get fired. That habit is deeply ingrained that when I'm going to be even on Zoom in front of a screen... You're professional. Yep. Yeah, it matters. It does matter. And to the point of habit, there is a benefit that our brains are wired in this way because it keeps us safe. Yeah. During COVID, I had friends that would do the sweats and t-shirt and slippers Zoom calls on business. And I said, go put a suit on or go put a jacket on or go dress up. And I said, you will see your performance go up. I guarantee it. Your attitude, your performance, everything. And a bunch of them did. And they're like, thank you. That was such great advice because... We don't feel like we're in the druthers, right? It just it feels professional again. It was interesting to see people walk away from their computers if the camera was situated a certain way and they'd have on like the professional shirt and then shorts right. or something. Short untucked and shorts. It was just always entertaining. I didn't think better or worse of them. But again, I didn't see any of the stuff you don't want to see. Yep. So innovation means different things to different people. What does innovation from a leadership perspective look like to you? I just read the book by, I think his name is Jolie Hubert, who was running Best Buy. What I found really interesting about 
the book. In fact, I read it twice. So the first time I read through the book, it's all about the turnaround of Best Buy. And if you kind of remember back in the dot-com days, everybody assumed Best Buy was going to die. Amazon was going to take over. Circuit City died. Like a bunch of other competitive companies just went out of business, right? I thought it would be a book about business strategy. And what I walked away from was it was a book about innovation and leadership to a large degree. And it wasn't that I thought that anything that Jolie did was innovative. It was a bunch of the stuff we just talked about that he created this mindset, this growth mindset from Best Buy that if they all pulled together as a team, they could turn around the company. And nobody had told him that, right? Everybody from the press to the previous CEO to, you know, everybody internally was, we're in survival mode and oh my God, you know. And so when you're in survival mode and you feel desperate, right? You're not thinking innovatively. You're not coming together as a team. And so he really did this great job of saying, don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to the press. Don't listen to the analysts. We've got this. The innovation of leadership to me isn't necessarily doing something brand new. It is taking these proven leadership practices, the vulnerability, the authenticity, the growth mindset, the how do you bring a team together, right? The passion and the energy and executing on it really well and really consistently. I tell people all the time, you know, that the business owners that we counsel, whether they're going to go exit their business and sell the company or they're growing, they all get wrapped up in, well, we have this IP, right? This is our IP. And oh my gosh. And I tell them the IP is worth zero unless you turn it into money. And so IP doesn't matter. And I think it's the same thing from the leadership perspective in that if you're not executing fundamentally on these things, it may be nothing really new, but it's the execution of it. That's where the innovation comes from. And like most things in the world, there's very few true, real, really, really, you know, breakthrough innovations. It's a tweak on something else. It's making something a little better. It's taking two or three different things and bringing them together in a unique way. And I think leadership, innovation leadership is kind of the same thing. It's taking a couple of these ideas that we all kind of intrinsically, academically, intellectually understand and bringing them together in a, in a way that you become a great leader. Because this is my field, this is a really interesting answer. I was looking at something in one of our books as you were speaking, and you hit several things that I think are interesting. Moving from something you said earlier, the kind of traditional command and control, to what I call the mind of the scientist, that we, and you pointed to it in the example about how do we work remote, hybrid, and on-site, a lot of it's experimentation, because we're solving for something that we haven't solved for, and there is no best practice so I have to be less command and control, more team and collaboration focused and have the humility to say, I don't have the answer and we will work with you to make sure you're engaged and we're profitable and bring those two together in a way that works for our people. And we're going to probably have a couple at bats before we hit a home run. Exactly. And that that's okay right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the success of Amazon, Amazon is the biggest experimenter probably of any business out there. Jeff Bezos had no issues having a billion dollar failure because the two or three billion dollar failures that they had became Amazon Prime. And there's tons and tons of examples. And so from a, both an organizational perspective and a, and a leadership perspective, to say, let's go experiment and give it a, give it a go and know we're going to fail. Again, that's 
kind of hard too, right? You're like, you didn't fail. No, that experiment failed. Okay. Okay. Move on and go do something else. You also have to have the billion dollars. So scoping the experiments to match the organization, right? I shouldn't experiment myself out of business. Right. I should experiment with something that is proportionate to my revenue. That's right. That's right. And there's lots of ways to experiment and run tests, both from a leadership perspective and a product perspective to figure out what, where the next opportunity is without breaking the bank. What's the biggest lever or strategy to drive innovation that matters? In other words, shows up as incremental growth for the company. I would say kind of general category, it is customer intimacy. But what do I mean by that? So with smaller growing businesses and most entrepreneurs I know, our brains are going all the time. We never stop. And so because of that, we're always chasing the next shiny object. We're chasing the next piece of revenue. And there's tons of books that I've written about, you know, niche down and, and focus or whatever. But I think it's really true. And I think that the deeper you can get into the mind of your customer, really understanding your customer deeply. To me, that's where innovation comes. It's just kind of the surface level. We're serving this market and they like our products. And that's about as kind of deep as we get into the customer mind. You're not going to create a whole lot of incremental growth and you're certainly not going to create any breakthrough growth. It's really understanding those pain points and the friction points and everything that goes on from in terms of the entire buyer journey that's where innovation comes from. And there's a framework called Ansoft Matrix. We didn't come up with it, but um, it's a way to look at your existing products and services and the existing markets that you serve and really put some rigor to defining what that growth plan looks like and what the growth path looks like. And the more you get away from your existing markets and your existing products, the more risk and the more investment it takes, right? And so if you have this customer intimacy and you really understand the buyer journey and you understand all their issues, you can create these adjacent products and services and adjacent markets that serve the same customer base. And that's where you can really try, try to drive incremental growth. And then you just keep testing your go-to-market strategy. And once you kind of figure it out, then you kind of put gasoline on the fire and you can have this breakthrough growth. But it all comes down to customer intimacy and market intimacy. And it sounds like also know your lane. That's right. Clear on strategy, clear on mission and vision. I don't just go say my friend's making money integrating an SAP and so I should go do that. And employees feel that very directly, right? If every month there's a, you know, strategy du jour and we're going to we're going to go do this tomorrow and we're going to do this the next day, it, it just creates this chaos internally that they're like this person doesn't know what they're doing. They there is no strategy, right? And most CEOs and entrepreneurs I know, they're okay with ambiguity and they're okay with, well, I can kind of see around the corner and I'll figure it out when we get there. Mm -hmm. That's not most employees. <laughs> they want predictability. They want assurances. They want, you know, a little bit less chaos in their lives. And so the really good business leaders are the ones that understand that they can operate at that level, but the rest of the organization can't. I have a client who is exactly that entrepreneur and he knows probably in his soul where the company's going and he knows which bets to place and which ones not to, but he's not, has not yet translated that to the strategy. And in fact, part of our process is taking what's in his head and turning it into a strategy. So it's interesting that the affirmation that exactly what's happening is Employees are saying, we feel like we've got whiplash. Yep. And all of these projects are important. Yep, exactly. And if all the projects are important, then nothing is important, right? Well, and this gets to your topic of the one thing. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that? The first time I read this idea, I resisted it, but then I played around with it and it, it actually works. I was excited when I saw your script and was going to get to have the opportunity to talk about this, what I think is a very important idea. We talk about these four pillars of the business, which is really pretty all-encompassing from customers to team to capital to strategic execution. And if we break down each one of those into kind of its sub-processes, if you will, we've kind of distilled down the one or two really what we again what we call the big ideas to focus on that really start to drive significant benefits back to the business in terms of growth and then when you combine them all together that's where you get explosive growth so right now talent is a big deal for everybody everybody's struggling with finding great people getting the people that they have inside the company engaged on and on and on and if you're in a restaurant business it's even harder right so one of the big ideas we have is that we think is been working really well with our clients is when most businesses advertise for an employee, for a, a prospective hire, right? What do they do? They typically copy and paste something off the web that's from a competitor and they stick it up on the web and go come work for us, right? And then they're really pissed off because they get nobody that responds. Yet at the same time, most business owners will say, we spent all this time building this customer avatar, right? We know exactly what our Jane customer looks like and what books they read and what media they consume information from and what websites it is. Why don't you do that for employees? So we work with our clients to build an employee avatar, meaning what does your ideal employee look like and does the culture fit with what that ideal employee looks like? And I'm not talking about a perfect employee. There is no perfect employee. There's no perfect person, right? But what are the values in your company, in your culture that you want to attract people to that you know are top performers. So if ambiguity is part of your the nature of your culture because you're in all these different markets or whatever, the don't hire a person that doesn't like ambiguity. It's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, a lot of this goes back to fundamental culture and really defining that very clearly. But spending the time to sit down and say, what does this ideal employee look like? And putting aside competencies and skills for that position, whatever, hiring for culture first, right? And core competencies first. And then, then you look at any specific skills that are on top of that. Now, clearly there are professions and businesses that you've got to have the skills, right? You don't want to hire a guy who wants to be a brain surgeon, right? You want that experienced brain surgeon. But for the majority of the roles, starting with that, what does the employee avatar look like? So to us, that's kind of that that big idea of spending the time to do that and being able to define the culture in a way that is attractive to people. And I talked to one of my clients and I said something about advertising the position and he kind of did the dog tilt look and he's like, what do you mean? I said, it's marketing. You're, You're marketing your business to potential employees as much as you're marketing your business to potential customers. In fact, it's probably even more important, frankly, that you get the right employees on board. And you probably hear this too, Maureen, is the majority of the problems that business owners, business leaders deal with, they're people problems. They're not customer problems, right? They're people problems. And it's like, Mm -hmm. how do you fix that? You fix that by having this great profile of what that ideal employee looks like that fits your culture. And if you get that right, then I, I would bet half of your problems go away. For anyone I'm working with, if you could make half of their problems go away, that would be astounding. Yep. Do you have other big ideas to share? Oh, gosh. How much time do we have here? (laughs) 
let's talk about um, kind of on the marketing, sales and marketing side. So we have this concept we call lighthouse positioning. So if you kind of step back and you think about what does a lighthouse do, right? So a lighthouse protects ships from hitting the rocks. It also is a navigational device to tell kind of ships where to go. So it has this really kind of unique dual purpose of repelling some ships, right? And also attracting others. And so that's what marketing should do. Marketing should very specifically repel some customers that you don't want, and it should attract the ones that you do. So we have this process that we go through called lighthouse positioning that will really focus on what is the one thing, maybe two, but the one key differentiation that your company has versus your competitors that matters to customers, right? And I can't tell you how many businesses will say, well, you know, it's customer service. It's like, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. Everybody says that, right? We have great customer service. What does it really mean? What is the benefit to the customer of having a great customer service? They are avoiding something. They're, you know, this industry is fraught with slimy, slimy companies. So like you got to define that in a way that is very, very specific, very tangible and specific to you and that it's scalable. So we had a client that their differentiation was personal attention from guess who? From the owner. The CEO. CEO, right? Yeah. So we're like, that's great for right now, but it's not going to scale. You're never going to get the kind of growth you want. You physically can't scale yourself, right? And so yeah, maybe a differentiator right now, but it's a really bad differentiator to hit the kind of growth rates that you want to hit. And so you've got to either figure out a way to take whatever you do that is that quote unquote personal attention and socialize, institutionalize it, or you got to come up with a different differentiator, right? And so they're frankly, they're really struggling with that right now. So it's this lighthouse positioning of spend the time thinking about where your market is going, right? where that industry is evolving, creating the strategic narrative around you're solving not the problems that are here today, but the problems that are coming down the road in a very tangible way to a customer that has some benefits to it. And then I think what, if you do a really good job there, then what is kind of a big idea for us is you then create this set of criteria that if a prospective customer is looking for your particular product or service, right? What are all the things that they should be thinking about? And there's a whole bunch of ways to kind of deliver this through marketing means. So if you think about it in the B2B world, if you're the company that gets to write the request for proposal, there's a very good chance you're going to get the business, right? And if you do it in a very objective way, you can literally reset the buying criteria that only favors you. So there's like a whole bunch of stuff to unpack here, but... The big thought is, you know, really spending the time figuring out what is your differentiator that scales, that's meaningful to customers, then creating this set of criteria. So you can literally put it on your website. Hey, if you're looking for business coaching, these are the things, in fact, we, we've got this on our website. These are the things that you should be looking for from a business coach. And if it's done in an authentic, genuine, and relatively objective way, you can put some things in there that favor you. Right. And so one of the things that we put when we talk about when you're looking for a strategic advisory firm is they should be focused on your transformation, not just information. And if they're focused on transformation, then they should be willing to put their money where their mouth is. So our firm, if you don't get a 10x return on the money you spent with us, we'll give you your money back. Nobody does that. Right. Because that's our differentiator. And we study the market extensively. And 
there's tons of business coaches and tons of strategic advisory firms out there. And this is one that is meaningful to customers. It's very clearly differentiated. And we can we can manifest this in our marketing materials to say, these are all the things you should be looking for. And even if you don't hire us, you'll be better off if you use this list of criteria to go find somebody. And, and every business can do that. You can do it in very, very subtle ways. So it's all about resetting the buying criteria back kind of to favor you. I love that you're sharing what you're doing in your own business because a 10x return is really compelling. I'm assuming you don't have a lot of people to turn you down. What's really interesting is it's hard for people to believe. So I suspect we've lost a business because people were like, it sounds too good to be true, right? But it's true. I can send you a check and expect you to kind of throw pixie dust on me and I'm not a very cooperative owner. Yep. Do you still have to kind of manage that situation? Yeah, of course. Our money back guarantee, if you will, is it's like one or two lines. And it basically says, you have to do the work. If we give you some counsel, mm -hmm. you have to do that, right? And if you do the work and it doesn't work, because we have these strategic frameworks, so we know that works. But if you don't do the work and you don't apply it to your business, then the guarantee goes away. Mm -hmm. If you do the work and it doesn't work for whatever reason, you should get your money back. You work with companies from a million to, I think you said, 50 million? Yeah, that's a unique situation. It's generally between a million and up to 10 to 15 million is kind of our sweet spot. But we've got some very sophisticated entrepreneurs that it's not their first business. It's not a startup, but they're under that million dollar range. And as I mentioned, we've got a couple that essentially was a family business where the family's taking over that they are an existing business. They're just not sure how to grow. So what's your sweet spot? About one to 15 million. I'm just wondering if there's a presenting problem or I just show up and say, I want my business to get bigger. We have kind of two clients. We have ones that are very specifically focused on growth. They're stuck for whatever reason and they're not sure why they're stuck. And they just, they want to get bigger. They want to make more money. They want to produce cash flow and they want to, they want more balance in their life, right? It's just killing them. That's probably 50% of our clients. And then we have 50% of our customers that they have an exit plan specifically. They want to sell their company at some point in time. And we're really, really good at getting companies to double the value of their business and get better terms. When I sold my business to KPMG, I sold it for 12 times EBITDA, which in the professional services space is unheard of and no earnout. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> There's some very specific strategic things that we can take a business through to, to get to that same place. So who's most fun to work with? Because I'm guessing some of these are really a lot of fun and others are a lot of work. Yeah, I think the ones that are the most fun to work with, they get it. They just, they get it, right? They're really open to coaching. And you probably know this, Maureen, from the work that you do. It's probably the same characteristics. They're good people, right? No egos. They're humble. They're just fun people to be around. Um, so kind of the mix of all those things, those are really the fun people. The ones that they have an ego, they think they know everything, they're not really open to coaching. Everything you say is met with, well, but, 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 you know, we didn't, mm -hmm. we, we used to do it this way. I did that once before and it didn't work. At some point we're like, all right, we're kind of, we're done. Like we, we just can't help you because you can't help yourself. We're, I hesitate to say post pandemic because we're <laughs> kind of in and out of the- We're getting there. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been doing this for how long? Really about 18 months. So I, I've been okay. mentoring CEOs and entrepreneurs for probably 15 years, formally and even informally through my business at SAP, you know, hundreds of entrepreneurs, kind of less formally. 
And I had a friend come to me about two years ago and he just said, dude, you spend a lot of time with these guys and you don't ask for any money. Did you know there's this whole coaching industry of people that are giving money to do what you do? And so I said, you know, let's, let's kind of create a formal business out of this. So we started by creating tons and tons of e-learning micro lessons, if you will, mm-hmm. and spent almost a year doing that. And then once we put all that, those pieces together, then we, we really kind of launched it. So post-COVID for, in terms of kind of next steps for us, is really to scale the business and do it in a way that is scalable. Right now, we we made the, the decision to get much more deeply integrated with our customers from a coaching perspective, and we're creating a bunch of assets that will require less of our personal attention, and so we can scale it up faster. Is this a scale and exit since this is your seventh business? Yeah, people ask me that all the time. <laughs> so I would just say no. None of those companies that I sold, did I start it to sell it? Every single business, I said, look, if you just make a good business and it's profitable and it's growing and it's a good culture and you have good customer, like all of the fundamentals, you're going to have the maximum amount of options, right? If you want to go public, you can do that. If you want to do an ESOP and sell it back to employees, do an LBL, whatever it is, you have the most options. And when you build it, sell specifically, you make very different decisions and they never favor the long-term health of the company. Mm. And so that's just my modus operandi. So we're going to just create a great firm and do all the right things. And if an opportunity presents themselves down the road, then I'll consider it. What's your legacy? Because integrating SAP is different than Ask My Board. Yes, it is. What's the kind of golden thread through here? So when I was 16 years old, I wrote a personal mission statement crazy, but my personal mission statement was to help those in my sphere of influence realize the potential they have within themselves. That's my legacy. And so this is much more. And so I could, I did it from an SAP perspective because I could make businesses better than they were. And so now I get to do it much more directly with CEOs and the businesses that they run. There's nothing better for Pete than giving counsel to somebody over a period of time. And all of a sudden you just see this boom, this light bulb go on and they just transform into this different person. And it has this, you know, replicating effect across the business. And just like, that's okay. My job's done. This is, this is amazing. So people graduate, they don't stay. Because if I could get 10X multiple times, that seems like a big deal too. I kick them out. When I know that they kind of don't need me anymore, right? When Yoda's done, it's like, just, just go. You don't need me. You don't need to pay me anymore. How long does that journey typically take? It varies. I mean, I, I've got folks that I've worked with for years that maybe they'll get it. I'm not sure. <laughs> or maybe they just, maybe they hang on because we just have a great relationship. Being a leader, being a CEO is a very lonely place. And so I, I you know, I think some of these guys just keep me on formally and formally, you know, either formally on an advisory board or just kind of informally as an advisor because they can talk to me about stuff that they can't talk to anybody else in the company necessarily or their spouse or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's all over the board. If you took me on, <laughs> what would I expect? We have a program that we go through and if it depends on whether you're specifically focused on growth or you're specifically focused on an exit. So if you're focused on an exit, we'll spend the first 30 days figured out where's your number? What do you really need to get to go have the freedoms that you want to fulfill. And then where's your business? We do a formal evaluation on the business. And then from that, we look at what the gap is Mm -hmm. and we build a plan based on the gap. And it's kind of a similar process on the growth side. It's like, where do you want to be that you're not right now, right? So if you're 5 million in revenue and you want to be 50 million in revenue, we don't question whether that's achievable or not. We just say, great, 
okay, what are we going to do to get to the 50 million? And we, we put a plan in place and we look at literally every aspect of the business across these four pillars. We have very formal kind of a sequence of trainings, both in the growth side and the exit side. We ask you to do uh, one lesson per week. It's typically, it can be 15 minutes and it can be 30 minutes. And then there's, we have tools that you very specifically take that piece of learning and apply it to your business. And then we spend some time kind of talking about how that went, right? And what the struggles were and do you kind of get it, you know, from pricing to this lighthouse positioning and all the key pieces of the lighthouse positioning to, okay, here's your business value assessment. There's eight drivers of business value. Let's focus on the three over the next six months that are going to drive the biggest amount of value from a kind of a long-term value perspective. Mm -hmm. So there's some stuff that's consistent across the client base, but each one is kind of uniquely different based on where they're at in the business and what they want to accomplish. And my guess is some of this is really hard or I'd be already doing it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's definitely some new concepts that we take some of our entrepreneurs through. I think the stuff that's hard for you or for the person is because it's questioning how you've run the business to that point, right? And it's the old adage of what got you here is not going to get you to the next step is very true. And so it's questioning assumptions. It's questioning how you've done stuff and not going back and saying what you did was bad. I mean, if you've built a million-dollar business or a $5 million business and it's surviving, you beat the odds. That's a big deal. You beat the odds. It's a really big deal, right? Yeah. So you take, you know, we take kind of what you've done to date and we see if we can make it better and at least some growth, personally and professionally. I'm just thinking of back to that competing commitment thing. Part of the reason I may not price as well is some internal belief of my own value. So we're overcoming, not that I don't know how to do a spreadsheet. It's a, an internal conversation is my guess. Right, exactly. We had a client that, how to put it, he, based on his upbringing, he had a, an unbelievable business and they made a ton of money and he had something internal to him that was basically, he didn't think that he deserved to be wealthy. And that came through drinks, frankly, that, that kind of came out. And once we kind of got through that and really talked through it and we kept kind of pushing on it a little bit over the course of a couple of months, once he's like, all right, that's cool. I can be wealthy, you know, because I can do, I can have such a bigger impact, right? And we talked about Bill Gates. It, mm -hmm. Whatever you like or don't like about Bill Gates, the fact of the matter is he's, probably one of the most successful philanthropic guys that we've ever had, right? He's trying to eradicate malaria. Like who's done that, right? Nobody. Mm -hmm. um, and on and on and on. And so, you know, we always say money, you know, accentuates whatever core character trait you have. And so if you're a jerk, you're going to be a really big jerk if you have a lot of money. If you're fundamentally a good person, you can heck of, have a really, really big impact, you know? And so we kind of got him into that mindset of, dude, you could really do some great things for the world by having money. So you don't help the bad guys get more money then? There's probably a few of those, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't talk about them. <laughs> Pete, this has been a pleasure to learn more from you and hear you share what you're doing and how you're doing it. Thank you, Maureen. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. It's good talking about this stuff. For our listeners, thank you for engaging. And I trust that you have heard something from Pete that you can put to work in your own life. And one of the things I'm hearing is that overcoming some of these challenges, one is just doable. There are frameworks. And for any of us who want to grow our businesses or grow our impact, 
there are structures and processes to help that happen. Yeah, for sure. You don't have to do this alone. And that's a big one for executives. Yep, it is. So Pete, how do people reach you? So they can go to our website, which is askmyboard, all one word, dot com, or they can reach out to me personally at pmartin, P-M-A-R-T-I-N, at askmyboard.com. Beautiful. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you, Maureen. You too. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And for our listeners, I trust that you enjoyed the conversation with Pete. Please like us and share us so that other people can also benefit from this wisdom. <music>